Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W.A.B.E. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today, two multifaceted artists discuss music and empathy. Conductor Natalie Stutzman shares with us the varied array of work she has programmed for her first season as music director of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. Also, ahead of his concert at Georgia Tech's first setter, singer-songwriter Jeffrey Kahane guides us through his album Magnificent Bird, a chronicle in story and song of an entire year off of the Internet and without cell phone. On piano and guitar, Kahane explores themes of quiet, marriage, fatherhood, and personal loss, all against the backdrop of the pandemic. First, a season of firsts. This fall, conductor Natalie Stutzmann officially assumes the position of music director of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. She joins us now via Zoom to talk about the 2022-2023 season. Maestro, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you. There is so much excitement surrounding your appointment as music director, and that outpouring of enthusiasm was palpable at last weekend's concerts from the audience as well as the musicians. It was a love fest for you. Did you feel it? Oh, yes, I was so moved and uh, I must say really um, almost in tears when I came on stage and uh, before I did anything, the whole audience stood up and just greet me like for for a minute, like with only love. And uh, that was just so, so incredibly uh, emotional and genuine for us. So now we are eager to hear about the works you have chosen for your first season. What music will you conduct at your opening concert as ASO Music Director? Well, you know, it's always a very uh, symbolic week, the first week for a new music director. So I wanted to have um, a week which was very clearly showing the directions of my passions and my work. 
and I couldn't imagine that week after all what we survived all together without performing Beethoven Ninth Symphony, which is really the work of friendship, putting people together again after having put people separately and far away from each other for so long. It was very symbolic and it's also one of the masterpieces ever written. also including our choir, soloist, full orchestra. And uh, I wanted to combine this masterpiece with less played music, which shows the same similarities in the human characteristic as we will perform the lilacs from George Walker. George Walker was also an incredible humanist. Uh, Lilacs is a beautiful song cycle written for soprano, which has never been performed here. Uh, it was very important for me to to have also an Afro-American composer, an Afro-American soprano from Atlanta, who will sing it symbolically to see how much we want to open our doors to everyone talented. And we will start with a co-commission, a creation of um, uh, contemporary music from Hilary Purrington, so a woman composer called Words for Departure, which is uh, a commission I did, and it's beautiful music for choir. Ah, yes. So a program of works featuring the ASO stellar chorus seems 
especially appropriate to your background. The last time we spoke, you explained how your career as an opera singer informs your conducting. And that quality was on vivid display in your interpretation of Mozart's Requiem. I've never heard that piece sound as operatic as it did with you on the podium. Will you speak about your conductor's approach to music as drama, or perhaps the inherent drama in music? Is that always foremost in your mind? Well, I I truly believe we are, we have to be storyteller because every human needs storytelling. Already as a child, what do you do when your child is nervous and you want to, to make him feeling relaxed and going to bed? Just telling a story. It's what we love when we listen to radio. If you listen to a radio program, after all, it's a storytelling about your life, about your guests. And music is mainly about storytelling as well. I mean, so I approach it through the music, of course, as a priority. But behind the notes of the composer, there is the storytelling. Which sentiment is there? Which emotion? Which uh, what was happening in the Strauss? for example, which has a, a real program story that Strauss was writing himself in a letter. So he gives us a lot of indications about why he writes this and that. For me, it's very important to share this with the musicians and, and tell them what it means and how we should translate that musically. Mm. Another program early in your first season that promises gorgeous music Pairs, works by Brahms and Schoenberg. What can you tell us about the visuals to be projected at that concert? Well, uh, the visual is will be projected during the Verklärtenart of Schoenberg. Once again, it's a beautiful story. It's a love story, and all the program is built up around love in different aspects.
Third Symphony of Brahms is clearly uh, describing his passion for Clara Schumann, which he was never able to really achieve, but which was such an inspiration for his music all over the years. And the connection with the Verklärtonat is that it's it's also a love story, which is beautiful. And I saw this filming in Paris two years ago, done by uh, Netta Jones, who has worked in such um, beautiful, discreet, black and white movie, which is projected during the performance and which just illustrates in the most discreet way all the story of the music. And I think it's very interesting. It creates a beautiful atmosphere. It is new because this is not the kind of things which have been done here before. And I truly believe it can bring also people who are not used to this piece of Schoenberg or people who are not familiar to classical music to understand better how much a storyteller we are. Mm, I can't wait to attend that concert. I read that... You want to honor Robert Spano's legacy of programming new music. How do you plan to continue that tradition? Well, we start the season. The very first uh, music which will be played is a commission that I did. I think that's uh, a very clear signal. And we have, during the whole season, about 13 new composer, new creation, which will be performed during the full season which is exceptionally uh, important. We will have John Tower, Jesse Montgomery, so many composers and a large selection of everyone who has not been performed necessarily before. We have Jennifer Higton, Concerto for Orchestra. We have um, Anna Klein's This um, Midnight Hour, which is an ASO premiere. John Tower, so lots of uh, female composers as well. Lyra Aubach with Icarus, which was premiered in Germany, but not here. We have also a composer from all nationalities. We have Vitseslava uh, Kaprovolova, Helen Green. So, you know, we have a lot of um, diversity as well in our modern commissioned works. Yes. In fact, the ASO continues celebrating musical and artistic diversity in the new season. What are some other examples of that commitment? Well, we have opened the doors to, you know, a lot of uh, different nationality artists because we want to give a a chance for those people to appear as much as possible. We have Afro-American conductors, 
Asia conductors, women conductors. We have, you know, all range of diversity in the programmation as in the composer, as well as the conductors and the soloists. Putting together a season is similar to putting together a puzzle, I think. You have all these little pieces, composers, soloists, orchestral repertoire, your availability, their availability. How did you decide upon a two-week Bach celebration? Well, uh, for my first season, it was also very important to me to have a lot of uh, major works of my core beloved repertoire and to select also works which have not been performed for a long time here. And Matthew's patient is one of those. I think Matthew's patient is, uh, is one of the greatest masterwork ever written. It is for me a necessity to spend time with this uh, music every Eastern. And uh, I feel sad every Eastern if I don't conduct it, but at least I will listen to it for sure. Uh, <laughs> because it's, um, it's a work which, you know, which resonates to all human lives. And it is so actual. It, it never gets older because it's the story of life. As a believer or no believer, it doesn't matter. It's a moment of reflection on your year of what you have done. Uh, Have you done good enough? Have you been nice and kind with people, with yourself? Uh, How have you acted? What have you done for the community? Have you been generous? It's important just to to reflect of what we are doing sometimes because everything is going so fast today that uh, you have the impression people are just reacting instead of reflecting. And uh, for me, Bach is just the composer which you need when you get a help. Bach is the balsam. And uh, the idea of creating a festival of two weeks, I found that very exciting. So we will have uh, like a lots of uh, smaller orchestra repertoire, chamber music, soloists uh, from the orchestra, David Couchon and Isabelle, Elizabeth Koch-Tishoni, which will play a concerto with me and some other favorites of Bach, Handel and Vivaldi, who were, I call it friends, because Bach was a great admirer of Vivaldi and Handel. And I think the excitement of this project is huge. I mean, two weeks of incredible music and a festival around Bach is just a, a dream. And in your deep regard, for the St. Matthew Passion, which you just spoke about. You are continuing the tradition of Robert Shaw as well, as he reflected on the meaning of that piece. 
and it certainly was a signature work for him with our orchestra and chorus. That's wonderful. Before leading the ASO chorus in the Ukrainian National Anthem last weekend, you spoke from the podium an eloquent plea for peace and an acknowledgement of support for those suffering with the war in Ukraine. And you said something about, we don't have weapons. Music isn't a weapon. But how do you see it as an agent for peace and unity? Well, I think it's it's probably when you think about in general, I think music is bringing only good, basically. Music doesn't hurt. Or if it hurts, it hurts just your feelings, but it's it's not something uh, which put people in danger. It, it is one of the rare things on earth which basically brings beauty and good things always. So I always feel beyond the pleasure that we have as musicians to, to be musicians. I see it as a mission. It's not only just playing music, it's a mission. We are here, we have a mission to help people to be happy or to get better when they are not happy or when they are suffering. Uh, you know, sometimes I, I receive personal messages and letters from many, many people, which I unfortunately don't have time to answer individually because I receive too many, but I, I promise you I read them. and. Uh, when I read, like the letter I got two days ago, people who are just telling me that they went through terrible years uh, because of uh, their life, because of their health, and that listening to me every morning was helping them to, to go through this period. I feel I am useful. It makes me so happy, and, and, and it, it is such a motivation, daily motivation for me to, to be 100% in my mission. It's a nice feeling to know you can help people with, with the beauty of music. Maestro Stutzmann, it is thrilling to have you as our music director. And I thank you for sharing the excitement with us. Well, thank you so much. I, am, I just can't wait to, to be back in October and start the, the journey together. Dr. Natalie Stutzma. More information about the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra's new season, Stutzmann's first as music director, is on our website, wabe.org. We're sad to note that the Atlanta Symphony's longtime principal cellist, Christopher Rex, passed away recently. Conductor Robert Shaw brought Chris as principal cellist to Atlanta in 1979, and his illustrious tenure with the ASO lasted through 2018. A chamber music enthusiast, Chris was an original member of the Georgian Chamber Players 
And in 2001, he founded the Amelia Island Chamber Music Festival, where he brought together top regional and internationally renowned artists such as Yo-Yo Ma, Wynton Marsalis, and Itzhak Perlman. Our deepest sympathy is with Chris Rex's wife, Dr. Martha Wilkins, and their children, Caroline and Christopher. There will be a musical celebration of Chris Rex's life on April 23rd at Trinity Presbyterian Church. In a moment, singer-songwriter and multi-instrumentalist Gabriel Cahane shares why he chose to spend a year off the internet. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Do you ever worry about being overly dependent on technology? Many people can't imagine going one hour without checking devices, much less an entire year without the Internet. Yet... Singer-songwriter Gabriel Cahane did just that and created music about the experience. He'll perform the album Magnificent Bird at the First Center on the campus of Georgia Tech, Monday at 8 p.m. And he joins us now via Zoom. Gabriel Cahane, welcome to City Lights. It's a pleasure to be here. So what made you decide to go a full year without the internet and your cell phone? Well, I think in order to answer that question, I have to begin in 2016, when a few weeks before the election in November, I decided that I was going to take a train trip, regardless of the outcome, the morning after the election. And... Of course, like many, I was surprised by the outcome and boarded a train at Penn Station in New York that Wednesday morning and traveled just under 9,000 miles around the continental U.S., talking to strangers primarily in dining cars of Amtrak trains. And I had decided at the last minute to leave my phone at home. And while I brought my laptop, I left it disconnected from the Internet for the duration of the trip, which was just under two weeks. And 
it was an extraordinary, transformative, humbling experience. It made me realize uh, all sorts of assumptions that I held about the body politic, about myself, my prejudices, so on and so forth. And I might add not, you know, the word prejudice is a Rorschach test, of course, depending <laughs> on wh what, what side of various aisles you sit on. Um, and in my case, coming from Brooklyn, where I lived at the time, I, I had a lot of assumptions about part, you know, parts of a middle, middle America with which I had relatively little experience. And while it sounds treacly and sentimental, I, I found over the course of that trip that um, that somewhat hallmarky saying that we have more in common than that divides us to be true. And I, I found uh, this was the weeks leading up to Thanksgiving that there was a universal sense of devotion to family, the kinds of sacrifices that people make for family, um, a great love of country, a great love, love of the, the natural beauty of, of this country, which is evident when one travels for 9,000 miles around, <laughs> around the nation. But anyway, somewhere in the middle of the trip, I remember thinking to myself, wow, being offline, being without my phone, this is really good. I, I should consider doing this for a longer stretch. And two years later, uh, our first daughter was born. And several months after that, the IPCC published its climate report saying more or less, you've got 12 years <laughs> to figure out how to deal with climate crisis or else. And I remember sitting at our kitchen table in Brooklyn and thinking to myself, convenience equals debt efficiency equals debt. And I was thinking about this in, in terms of my daughter and the ways in which there's so many things that we take for granted in our daily di daily lives that um, reduce friction, whether it's one-click ordering from Amazon or uh, you know having food delivered to our door, social networks, so on and so forth. But there's always a, a, a hidden cost. Um, and, and sometimes the, the more frictionless the exchange um, the more insidious that hidden cost is, whether it's in, in the form of you know, the planet that our children are going to inherit or the ways in which our democracy suffers because all of the, the nuance is sort of sucked out of our discourse because algorithms are designed, you know, I'm of course not the first to say this, but the algorithms are designed to, to make us as rageful as possible to, um, to bring out what, uh, what are called activating emotions there are so many reasons that I, I decided to take a year off the internet, but I guess if I if I were to really try to you know sum it up as succinctly as possible, I think that the internet uh, is making it more difficult for us to love each other. I I think that the deep deficit right now in this country is our ability to see ourselves in one another, and I felt that in myself. In addition to you know a horrific dependency on my iPhone, and it was you know pulling me away from my family, from my art skewing the ways in which I understood my art making. How long did it take you to be at ease with being unplugged, Gabriel? It was pretty quick, to be honest. The The much more difficult adjustment was returning. Hmm. Um, I think much like any addiction or compulsion, moderation is more difficult than um, abstention or abstinence. Uh, I've really struggled in the 18 months since I've been back online. I, I marked my year offline from November 3rd, 2019 through November 3rd, 2020. I chose those dates specifically because I wanted to know what it would feel like to observe an election cycle without being in the maelstrom of 
digital culture I had felt in myself in the the lead up to the 2016 election and and in the lead up to the midterms fighting a kind of ugliness in myself and that I observed in a lot of digital spaces and this again is really sort of what I'm what I'm talking about that I think that it's very easy when we're looking at uh, you know our Twitter feed or our Facebook feed and we post something with real uh, potentially selfless righteousness we're not able to see the totality of what the philosopher Timothy Morton has called hyper objects that that um, the sort of hyper object that is digital discourse there is always a thumb on the scale privileging the most outrageous statements over the ones of nuance and the ones that are say filled with compassion empathy love and so it does feel to me one of the, th- the, the things that I, I feel that I learned from taking this time away is that um, as much as I had been a, a sort of poster of political and activist adjacent material on all of my social channels, I realize in, in retrospect that I think it was a lot of shouting into the void and that what I'm more interested in doing is trying to find other opportunities like the one that I had back in 2016 to actually talk to people face to face and to not to um, will away difference or to be Pollyannish about it. I think also of the great feminist poet Audre Lorde who says this beautiful thing. um, When I define myself, when you define yourself, the ways in which I'm like you, the ways in which I'm not like you, I'm not excluding you from the joining. I'm broadening the joining. Mm. You wrote Magnificent Bird in the final month of your internet-free year. I'm curious about how you convey those impressions, your huge takeaways from that time, how you expressed that in this album. Well, it's interesting. The album has just come out, and as I have been talking about it for the first time, um, I'm realizing that the year offline does not come to bear explicitly on on the music itself. Uh, I think October 2020, when I wrote all of these songs, was, of course, a time of roiling chaos in this country not only the election but an overlapping series of natural disasters and uh, coming out of this incredible season of of protest and awakening both for racial justice and and i think for economic justice and leading up to that month i had been trying i think to to do some version of the great american novel in song to try to distill or compress all of these experiences into some kind of single gesture and it was really paralyzing and so in that final month i i made this decision to write a song every day as a way of giving myself permission to write about small things and in the end in writing about those small things the world intruded on them so there's a song where i sing about making a cup of coffee and yet i'm also contemplating the prospect of 
civil war contemplating the prospect of another horrific fire season in Oregon. Um, and I think the, the album as a whole shuttles between these very personal experiences of grief, shame, nostalgia, salvation, and the world around me going totally crazy. And oddly enough, with the war in Ukraine, I, I find that as I'm practicing these songs and singing these lyrics, feeling that they they resonate for me a little bit more deeply than they did at the time that I was writing them, because I think that the sense of existential crisis is greater now even than it was then. To be American, is that your distillation of the great American novel in song for you? You know, I'm, I'm always loath to to talk about my own lyrics because I, I don't ever want to put my thumb on the scale as far as what something means. I'm a big believer in negative space and leaving enough room for a listener to make meaning. I think what I will say about that song is that it is sort of deliberately a Rorschach test. It's a song that traffics in nostalgia and interrogates nostalgia at the same time. And I think that one could listen to it and hear the lyric uh, as a kind of earnest elegy, or one could listen to it and think that the narrator is saying good riddance to a kind of naive pre-9-11, often white American innocence. It's, uh, <laughs> again, you know, this is, this is the funny thing about doing interviews is on, on the one hand, you want you want people to know about what you're doing. And on the other hand, you don't want to explain what the art is because then you deprive the listener of having his or her own experience. To be American again, teenaged and certain of innocence. Six lanes of Western caravan burn fuel to speed up the renaissance before the trench coats and the rolled off rooms, the shell shocked mothers and the TV crews foreclosing a grand old dream, black morning cater on it. One of the tracks on the album is titled Sit Shiva, about the Jewish ritual of mourning, a week-long period for relatives, close friends who've passed away. This song is beautiful in tribute to your grandmother. Would you speak about Sitting Shiva? Absolutely, and thank you. Um, yeah, Sit Shiva is the, the last song on the album. I wrote it on, I think, October 5th. Uh, it it conflates our experience as a family of, of sitting Shiva digitally and then having a, a memorial for her a few months later, also online. And these were the only instances in which I used Zoom or the internet. Uh, in that that way for the entire uh, period of my digital sabbatical um, during which I was otherwise you know not didn't have a smartphone no email no social media no web browsing no YouTube so on and so forth and I I made the decision I I think understandably that that um, God if I believe in her him they them 
um, would probably want me to to be present for that. My mother, describing her mother, fought back tears. It's weird, I thought the intimacy of seeing someone try not to cry in a close-up on the screen. And it was an incredibly moving experience, not in spite of or perhaps because of the fact that this, my, my mother's mother, uh, I was not particularly close to. I, I knew her very well. We had spent a lot of time together. I was much closer to my father's mother, who died in 2010, and about whom I wrote on my last album, Book of Travelers. She fled Germany in 1939. There was something about the way in which I participated in those rituals for her. I, I, I wouldn't say necessarily from an emotional distance, but in the way that the Zoom gallery allows us to watch other people reacting. And there's such an incredible intimacy to this, you know, going around the country and in some cases overseas, hearing people offer stories and recollections of, of the matriarch of our, of our family. She had four sons and a daughter. My, my mother is the youngest of five. And my step-grandfather, Raymond, who is sort of the, the hero who emerges in act three of this three-minute song, he was a remarkable man. Uh, he was, for the better part of 50 years, the business manager of the New York Review of Books and worked into his 90th year. Uh, I think he was going into the office at that point one day wow. every other week. Wow. And he never used a computer took all of his uh, calls on on speakerphone. He was very hard of hearing and had this magnificent uh, conversational gift. He spoke in elaborate, looping, labyrinthine paragraphs. He loved to talk about military history and Henry James and The New Yorker and so on and so forth. And he had to be prodded and prodded and prodded in order to finally participate in this memorial because one he was grief stricken and two he uh, hated the internet <laughs> <laughs> and i don't want to spoil the song but but he finally he, he makes an appearance in the last verse of the song as it goes from a song of grief to to being this kind of radically compressed love song singer-songwriter and multi-instrumentalist Gabriel Kahane. We'll be back with more of our conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE.
This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for listening. If you are just tuning in, my guest is musician Gabriel Kahane. He'll perform at Georgia Tech's first Center for the Arts on Monday, April 4th. Leading up to the show, Kahane had a week-long residency at Georgia Tech that included unplugged walks with students. Here, he tells us about what the experience entailed and how it will be incorporated into his upcoming concert. So this idea of sending students out on a walk for two hours without their phone grew out of a class that I taught last spring at Princeton called Art and Change in the Panopticon, which I co-taught with the extraordinary scenic designer, Christine Jones. And in that class, we had asked each of our eight students, some of whom had a focus in the arts and others of whom did not, to make some kind of art object or art experience for one other person. And one of the things we had in mind was to avoid the the problem of trying to present work online digitally. The other thing that we were thinking about in in that invitation was to sort of free our students of thinking about scale and making art for a mass audience. And this is another one of my sort of bigger takeaways from my year offline, um, along with encountering Lewis Hyde's incredible book, The Gift, about gift consciousness and, and the ways in which art longs to be a gift, even though it is also trapped in a market economy, that we live in a culture that valorizes scale as having intrinsic value, that it's it's better to play for 10,000 people than for five people. And one of the things that, that I really embraced from reading Lewis Hyde is this notion that, at least for me, what really fulfills me and nurtures me and restores my spirit and makes me want to go make more things is the small intimate encounter with a single listener and not even necessarily out of gratitude, but just their sheer presence that the, that the act of reciprocity of gift exchange is me singing a song and someone else just being present to hear it. And that's something that I also was aware of in making the album Magnificent Bird, which was made entirely by remote. I recorded all of my vocals and piano and guitar alone in my studio here in Portland, Oregon, where we moved by accident at the beginning of the pandemic. And singing to myself was incredibly difficult. And I realized that even just having one other person on the other side of the glass, that that engineer or a single producer, that transforms the experience of singing to, to exist in a kind of gift exchange. Makes me feel ashamed, I suppose that's why I stepped away for a year, clear of the scroll. A pick line drip of glowing hearts, righteousness and shopping carts, as if it could ever make us whole. And when my friends call to tell me that it's worse than before, friendly fire. So at the tail end of this class at Princeton, 
Christine and I decided that we wanted to give something back to our students. And we had invited them a couple times throughout the semester to go on two hour walks without their phones. I had recently finished my year offline and we were trying to give them a little flavor of that and and also a way of sort of engaging with some of the texts that we'd been reading. We read um, excerpts from Lewis Mumford's incredible book, Technics and Civilization, which is this extraordinary history of the machine age from the ninth century to 1934 in which it was the year in which it was published. Um, And we wanted them to have an experience of their own agency without their devices. Now, interestingly, these are kids who are 18 to 22 and they're, you know, it's a sample size of eight for about half of them. The experience of being without their phone for two hours was totally not a big deal. They, they were fine. They said, we do, you know, I leave my phone at home all the, all the time for the other four. It nearly induced panic attacks to be separated from their devices for that long. And then we asked them to record 10 observations. And then we took those observations at the end of the semester without having told them in advance. And we made a song, Christine and I made a song, which we recorded and and performed for them during our final Zoom meeting. And so when I was thinking about how to engage students at Georgia Tech, um, knowing that it's an even more technology-centric campus than, than Princeton, which has its own uh, strong relationship to to technology. Um, I thought it would be interesting to to try to replicate this experience, and in this instance, take those reflections from the students and create a song that will be performed only at Georgia Tech, only on April fourth, mm. um, one one time only as a as a particular kind of expression, I guess, of of gift exchange. Your style has been described as a blend of indie rock and indie classical. Your dad is one of the finest pianists around today, conductor, music director. How does your music pay tribute to your dad, Gabriel? Well, it's funny you should ask that question because just last week here in Portland, um, my father gave the West Coast premiere of Heirloom, a piano concerto that I wrote for him, which uh, is a piece about inheritance. It's um, an exploration of three inheritances, the first movement dealing with my musical inheritance from my parents. That movement is called Guitars in the Attic. The second movement uh, is called My Grandmother Knew Alban Berg, and explores uh, this sort of intergenerational memory that comes down through my father's mother, who, as I mentioned, fled Germany in 1939. When she arrived in Los Angeles, she wrote in her diary that she was deeply conflicted, having to do with her deep love of German music and literature on the one hand, and on the other, the ways in which that that music and literature had been appropriated by the Nazi regime. And ultimately, she found her way to some kind of reconciliation. And we went to concerts of Beethoven and Brahms and Schubert uh, until basically the year she died. And so that that is uh, a piece in which I'm sort of exploring how how memory and how music and culture are passed down. And then the, the last movement is called Vera's Chicken-Powered Transit Machine. <laughs> 
which is about my my elder daughter. She's going to be four in June. Uh, who, when we arrived in Portland, um, thinking we were coming for a week, the pandemic hit. We ended up staying and moving out of our apartment in Brooklyn remotely. All of her books and toys were back in Brooklyn, and so my um, my ever canny partner took a diaper box and scrawled on it Vera's chicken powered transit machine. Our daughter was very into eating chicken at the time. <laughs> and we pushed her around the cement floor of this apartment where we were staying. And so that final movement is really about the, the kind of numinous forward inheritance, you know, what, what we pass on to our children that when they're very small, we, we can't really say what it is that we're going to give them. Oh, and my father is the, the sort of steward for, for this piece. So it's a, a real joy to, to share that with him singer-songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist Gabriel Cahane. He'll perform music from his album Magnificent Bird at Georgia Tech's First Center for the Arts on April 4th, Monday at 8 p.m. You can find more information on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Atlanta High School senior and Met Opera ambassador Layla Felder shares her excitement about fire shut up in my bones. The opera airing Friday on WABE-TV from PBS Great Performances. City Light senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.